your time is a zero-sum equation. So if you're spending four hours a day on your phone, you're not spending four hours a day on something else. So to me, the important first question to ask is, well, what do you want to be spending time on? And that's a relevant question, whether you're traveling or just in your everyday life. What is the point of your travel or what do you actually enjoy doing in life in general? Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with science writer Catherine Price, who wrote a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. Now, I've always been a proponent of using smartphones sparingly, especially when you travel, since for all the ways they can be useful, smartphones have a way of distracting you from life as it plays out in real time. Yet for all the advice I've dispensed on not allowing electronic devices to take over your travel experience, I've found that I'm just as susceptible to the conveniences, addictions, and distractions that lurk on my smartphone. I discovered this 10 years ago while traveling in Africa for the New York Times Magazine. I was using a BlackBerry at the time, and while I was in the town of Lokachogia, Kenya, I found that the local signal there allowed me to call the U.S. for free. And so it was that I spent an entire evening chatting with friends and family back home instead of immersing myself in that fascinating refugee town on the border of South Sudan. A few years later, I got into the habit of checking the weather app on my brand new iPhone when I could have just as easily walked outside in places like Paris or Montevideo and seen the weather for myself. Despite my good intentions about how I planned to use my smartphone, it often proved to be more clever than I was. Part of the problem, I think, is the way my brain works. I recall way back in 1995 becoming so compulsive about the computer game Tetris that I ultimately quit playing computer and video games altogether. Weirdly enough, a kind of compulsion led me to the work of Catherine Price. I often use my smartphone to save articles to Instapaper so I can read them later. And a few weeks ago, I realized I'd saved three different articles by or about Catherine in her book. Obviously, some instinctive part of me was worried that I needed to change the way I use my phone so it would serve my own way of being in the world instead of the other way around. So I got in touch with Catherine, and together we dug into eight strategies for doing just that. Let's listen in. I know, Catherine, that you sort of have, you sort of had a come to Jesus moment yourself in regards to smartphone uh, with your baby. Can you tell us that story? Sure. And uh, thank you for having me on. Um, I have many reactions to the stuff you just said as well, including a, uh, a Tetris addiction myself back in around 1995. That was a wake up. Yeah. But the more the more recent uh, wake up was that I had had a baby and I was sitting one night with her uh, late at night and I looked down and I saw that she was looking up at me and that I was looking down at my phone. In that particular moment, I really was searching for antique doorknobs on eBay, which I did not need. I have doorknobs. <laughs> I have means with which to open my doors. Uh, but anyway, my heart sank and I just realized, you know, this is not what I want her impression of a human relationship to be. And I'm a science journalist by training and also an avid traveler. And it reminded me of something I'd read in the past. I couldn't really remember what it was at that moment. But I've since realized I was thinking of this experiment called the still face experiment. Um, which I recommend people Google if they want to feel really uh, sad. <laughs> it's a experiment in which parents are asked to interact normally with their babies for a minute and then spend one minute with completely still faces, not have any reaction to what the baby does. And you see the baby begin to really freak out, uh, writhe in the seat, start to make these very animalistic sounds, get totally distressed. And that reaction promptly goes back to normal interaction when the parent begins to pay attention to the kid again. And I realized that that was what I was doing to my daughter and that that's what we're all doing to each other right now. 
And it really, really upset me. Yeah, understandably. A, a, a part of my brain was thinking, oh, well, maybe they can invent some multitasking app that makes you laugh at the right time to entertain your baby. But Probably. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah, exactly. I get cynical, too. I'm like, here's an app for that. Sure. He needs right. reaction. The multitasking with your baby app to 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 bring out the right facial expressions, but I, I'm I'm being facetious, of course, because it, that is sort of a heartbreaking notion, right? That a lot of these cues that have informed mother child or father child interaction for generations might be blocked uh, through technology. So uh, let's actually let's rewind back to Tetris because in a way this is really about the human brain and how it works, and I'm sure as we go through these eight points. Uh, you'll have a lot to say about that. Um, but I'm curious, since you had a, a Tetris addiction in the same year that I did, um, take us back for a little while before going forward. So you had this moment with your baby, but obviously there were other distractions that happened before the smartphone came into existence. Yeah, I got a Game Boy. Uh, if your listeners are old enough to remember the first Game Boy, it is like really telling in terms of our brains wiring that one could get addicted to anything on the original Game Boy because it was like a brick and it was black and white. And I mean, I actually, my mother got addicted and I started to charge her for games. I charged her 10 cents a game, which really was a bargain. Awesome. And I made like $20 off of her. I mean, I can, I have that theme song running through my head right now as we speak. So I think that I, I learned early on between that and then the fact that um, I got really into Super Mario Brothers on the actual um, TV console. But my parents said I could, sure, I could have that if I paid for it, which of course meant I never got that. But I used to like engineer excuses to go to my neighbor's house so that I could eat zucchini fritters and play Super Mario Brothers. So, you know, I, I don't think that I was ever a video game addict in the serious sense of the word at all, but I certainly have experience with recognizing the pull of those things and how magnetic they can be, even if they're pretty lame. Yeah, for sure. Now, were, there, were there other experiences like um, with technology before smartphones or certain situations like travel where you found that you were interacting with technology in different ways? Or was this epiphany really specific to, to that moment with your baby and the smartphone? I have an issue with email. If I'm addicted to anything, it's email. So that I think I definitely, um, I was somewhat cognizant of that and then began to really recognize those same characteristics when I interact with my phone. And then in terms of travel, yeah, I mean, definitely I spent actually seven months traveling with my husband between moving between coasts. I'm from the East Coast originally and had been living in California. And luckily that was before smartphones, which meant that we actually had to interact with people. And um, I do feel that it's really important to evaluate your the way you want to use technology when you're traveling. I mean, if you're trying to be, as you said, efficient in your travels, maybe it's a business trip, that might be one context. But if you're out to experience the world, then efficient is not really a word I would use that I would recommend. And I had one particularly um, useful experience myself when I was assigned an article for the Oprah magazine back in the day when this kind of thing would happen where um, I proposed an idea where I would take a trip based entirely on the recommendation of strangers, not even have a map. And I ended up going to Tokyo because someone said they liked Tokyo. And then every single thing I did on that trip was the result of asking someone with the help of flashcards that a friend's mom wrote for me in Japanese, like, what should I do? And it was amazingly freeing. It was, it sounds like it should be stressful to not know what was going to come next or to miss out on a big site in Tokyo. But I realized that's, first of all, not what I would remember, right? Like everyone goes to the same things. Everyone goes to the fish market. Um, but second, that's not really, it was actually relaxing to just let myself trust that other human beings would make recommendations to me and that ultimately that experience would be far more memorable than if I'd just gone by a smartphone, like yelping 
or recommendations in a guidebook. The last night I remember that I was sitting in this um, <laughs> in the window of a store with my feet submerged in water with these fish nibbling at my dead skin called Dr. Fish and thinking I never would have ended up here if I had started with my phone. That's a great initiative, actually, from my listeners that like just instead of a smartphone, use use flashcards and advice. I mean, um, that's a great strategy. I think, you know, the idea of fear of missing out has become an acronym within the last uh, generation. Uh, but I think anybody who's traveled a lot will will realize that the best experiences don't happen in front of the big monument that you thought you wanted to go to, you know, that it's going to happen. Exactly. In those moments. And, and, and I've said for many years now that there's it used to be that. If you could embrace your loneliness, if you could um, embrace your boredom and and not worry about getting lost, those three factors, then you could really wander your way into new experiences. But with a smartphone, it really preempts lonely, uh, getting lonely, lost, and bored because the, it offers so many solutions. Um, and again, it's I think it's that fine line that you have to walk that some of these solutions are good solutions, but there's a whole universe of, of experiences that you're missing. Um, if you aren't, and this is just in travel specifically, letting yourself getting lonely, lost, and bored. So I think this feeds right into a lot of points you're going to make as we go down uh, this list of ideas about how to redefine your relationship with your phone. So let's start with number one, reframe the way you think about it. What does that mean? Well, right now, a lot of us, when we notice, if we notice that we're spending an awful lot of time on our phones, we immediately jump to the assumption that the solution is to just spend less time on your phone. I need to spend less time on my phone. But we don't actually identify why we want to do that or what we want to do instead. So in my research, I found that the average person is spending about four hours a day on their phones right now. That's based off of a sample size of more than 4.8 million people. So I feel confident saying wow. that that actually is a real number. It's from this tracking app called Moment. And that's just time with the screen on. So it doesn't count like phone calls or podcasts when you have the screen off. That's a lot of time. Uh, so I understand the immediate impulse to be like, oh, you know, <laughs> expletive, like I need to cut back. But that makes it feel like a diet and nobody likes being on a diet. And I think the more important point to realize is that your time is a zero sum equation. So if you're spending four hours a day on your phone, you're not spending four hours a day on something else. So to me, the important first question to ask is, well, what do you want to be spending time on? And that's a relevant question, whether you're traveling or just in your everyday life. What is the point of your travel or what do you actually enjoy doing in life in general? And start from that point. So, for example, if your answer is that I want to uh, have new experiences that I can't predict that I'll remember, right, then you've identified a goal. You want to do that more. Then next, I would say, well, how is your phone preventing you from doing that or getting in the way? And the answer might be, well, because I, I constantly find myself looking at my phone instead of interacting with the world. So then you actually have a, a positive goal. You want to be spending more time having experiences and you know why your phone is preventing you from doing that. And then when you, when you restate your goal, it's I want to spend less time on Yelp so that I can have more experiences in my travels that I will actually remember, then you have a positive place to start from. And you've turned your phone from this source of pleasure that you're denying yourself, which doesn't sound fun. Uh, and you're turning it into a temptation that is or something that is actually getting in the way of the your enjoyment of your life. And that's a lot easier to then say, okay, well, I don't want to be doing that. That sounds bad. I want to be living my life. Yeah. And I think 
One thing that underpins all of this is that in many ways, our smartphones are smarter than us now. Like they've already outwitted us um, because there's, again, there's that idea, oh, well, I want to spend less time with my phone, but your phone already knows sort of how your, your lizard brain works. Uh, and it already has all of these mechanisms to keep you going back to it. Again, this is stuff we'll we'll cover as we get to other points. Um, but it seems like uh, this is also oftentimes the question, and of course we've we've sort of covered number two uh, as well, which is ask yourself what you want to pay attention to. Sometimes, you know, we might say, "Oh, well, I want to spend more time traveling," and then you get to the location, and there's a an app that helps you. Find the bus so you don't ask anybody about the bus. And there's an app that helps you find the best place to look at the monument. And so then you find the best place with the monument with all the other people who have the app. And then you find the best restaurant. And pretty soon you've you've completely um, mitigated this travel experience, this thing that you wanted to do, and you haven't let go of your smartphone yet. So what would you say about that complication, the fact that our smartphone actually is trying to help us um, solve and and uh, engage with a lot of these big picture dream activities that we already want to do? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, one thing I came across in my research that I found really interesting is that humans are very drawn towards foraging, not just for food or things that would sustain us, but also for information. So you have a natural desire to find out what are the best things here? What should I go see? That's, that's your brain acting uh, normally. Um, but second, say it reminds me of actually a different book I wrote called 101 Places Not to See Before You Die, which sounds like it's anti-travel, but actually was very pro-travel. And the point was that travel shouldn't be a checklist. It should be about having new experiences. So if you're just seeking things out because it's on a list, then you're actually missing the point of leaving home. Um, so those are two things I would say in response to that. And then also, you know, this applies to travel and just general life, we tend to start to think that everything is contained on the phone, that the phone has the answer, like that all experiences are somehow going to be searchable on Google. Whereas in reality, as anyone who loves travel knows, the best moments are those that you can't predict. And in fact, going to your point about getting lost, I bet that most people have a lot more stories about getting lost than they do about finding their destination. I mean, that's the stuff you remember is when I mean, as you said that, I'm thinking of when I was like 17 years old and went on a family trip to Krakow and I went out with our elderly friend that we were traveling with. We thought we'd take an early morning walk in Krakow because how can you get lost in the old city of Krakow? There's a moat around it and we didn't take money, didn't write down the name of our hotel, somehow got out of that moat and had to pantomime uh, to old Polish ladies who took pity on us and somehow got us on a bus that somehow resulted in us getting back to our hotel. You know, and I remember that this many years later. I don't remember anything else we did in Krakow. But that was a pretty fun experience in the end. <laughs> yeah, and, and as a science journalist, I think you understand it, it makes your brain work in new ways, right? That that um, unexpected experiences are are ex are experienced different than differently than expected experiences, and that's happened to me in Paris before. Like the the idea that I grew up in the Midwest with the Jeffersonian grid system of roads has led gotten me lost a million times in Europe because I I assume that walking in turning left four times will get you back to where you started when that's just not the case. So, um, exactly. And also I think an important point to bring up is that, um, if you're off your phone slow, like time actually slows down. And, and that's, I think one of the best things about travel and something I can, I wrote about in previous articles is that the having new experiences actually makes time feel like it's slowing down. So when you're on your smartphone, you're actually 
stealing that really cool aspect of travel. Because as I know from my experience taking a break from my phone, being off your phone and off the internet makes it feel like there's a lot more time in the day. So you're, you're harming that part as well if you're spending the whole trip uh, constantly glancing down at your phone. Yeah, I think that's the science I was lo- alluding to, the, the idea that time is experienced in different ways. Um, and I probably even learned this from a podcast, the idea that if you're, if you're falling or if an accident is about to happen, you experience it in slow motion or you seem to experience it in slow motion um, because of its novelty. And so we have this giant gift of novelty, the, the world around us that we're sort of cheating ourselves out of because we're making it too predictive with our phone in front of our faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then actually the, the idea of the bucket list, which has really only come into parlance in the last 10 years or so, has entered a lot of my podcast conversations, um, that it's a great motivator, but if you don't deviate from it, then then um, you're sort of cheating yourself of that world experience, which sounds that that's sort of exactly what your book was about. So um, I'm, I'm going to combine points three and four, which is uh, three is set yourself up for success, and four is create speed bumps, which I, which I suspect is part of this... Uh, is tied into the fact that your brain gets a little bit compulsive with the smartphone in effect. Yeah, well, so this is funny. One of the effects that smartphones are having in our brains is making us forgetful. And I don't remember what I meant by set yourself up for success. Can you give me a hint there? <laughs> I could talk about it. <laughs> okay. Um, in, in the article, you say create triggers that will remind you of your goals and make it easier to live up to them if you want to. Spend oh, yeah, that's yeah. a good point, Catherine. OK, <laughs> yeah. So that's another important thing when you talk about behavior changes. We often try to remove a negative trigger, which is a good thing to do. For example, if you're trying not to check your phone before you go to bed, getting your phone out of your bedroom, getting a standalone alarm clock is a really good idea because it removes this automatic trigger that makes you reach for your phone. Uh, It's like I've got type 1 diabetes and I've learned from experience I should not get lunch at the store that's across the street from the cookie store, right? That's a bad idea. But if I walk a different route or go to a different place for lunch, I'm much less likely to want to have a cookie. So the same thing is true with our phones. Um, You know, give your phone a bedtime, have it sleep in the closet. If you're traveling, use the travel safe or put it on some kind of mode that makes it so you can take pictures with it but not do anything else. But what we often forget when we do that is that unless you add a positive trigger, you are going to go right back to your old habits. And by that, I mean you need, again, to identify the the habit that you're trying to establish or the behavior you're trying to uh, adopt and then make it easier. So in the case of the taking the phone out of the bedroom, well, you're going to reach for the phone because that's your habit. You need to have something on that bedside table instead of your phone. So if you say you want to read this latest travel book, for example, have that travel book there. Have a magazine article. If you say you want to play more music, have your, your instrument out of its case somewhere accessible. So that is a way to set yourself up for success where when you're about to engage in this behavior that you're trying to modify, you are presented with an easy alternative. So that's the first thing. The speed bumps is actually that um, the idea that many of our behaviors on our phone are just, as you said, it's the lizard brain. We're not even aware of what we're doing. I'm sure many of your listeners uh, can identify with the feeling of looking down and finding your phone in your hand and having no idea how it got there and don't know, you know, not knowing what happened to the past 30 minutes of your life. So the idea with speed bumps is basically to create small obstacles that make you slow down and force you to decide if you want to continue. The opposite of that is, for example, a casino where they don't have clocks on the windows and they don't have, um, sorry, clocks on the windows, they don't have clocks on the walls and they don't have windows with the idea being to make you lose track of time. Um, 
and make it very easy to continue, just as social media feeds don't have any endpoints. It's the same idea. So a speed bump would be something like changing your lock screen to something that says, what do you want to pay attention to? Or do you want to pick me up right now? I actually created free uh, lock screen images people can can download off of the website for the book, which is phonebreakup.com that say that. And the idea is that when you reach for your phone and you go to turn it on, you encounter this question. And there's a moment where you can actually decide if you want to continue past that page. Um, I do other things like I set up app blockers for myself and I make all sorts of other (laughs) difficulties so that if I actually want to do what if I want to check Twitter, for example, I actually have to go through several steps in order to do it. And that prevents me from doing it on autopilot. And that's an important point also is that there's nothing wrong with these behaviors if you want to be doing them. My recommendation would not be that you just arbitrarily decide that you're not going to use your phone at all. I would say decide what you want to use it for and decide what you don't want to use it for and then modify the phone itself or your behaviors or your environment to make it easier to keep that good stuff and then not not succumb to the other parts. Yeah, that comes up in travel a lot too is that is in my early advice was just like, well, don't use your smartphone. Then once I had my own smartphone, I realized it had its uses. It's just a matter of finding that balance, you know, finding the right ways to use it. And a lot of what you've been saying sounds a little bit absurd that you're just like throwing up these, all these obstacles. Some of them are physical obstacles to using your phone. But I know a generation ago, friends who would buy a pack of cigarettes and then smoke one cigarette and then throw the rest of the cigarettes away. And they, they would do it again and again and again. That, you know, that somehow they had this ritual that they thought if they threw the cigarettes away, then somehow the, the wasted money would, would trick them into not buying another pack of cigarettes. But they kept doing it over and over again. So I think it really is tied to these rituals that, that predate, you know, brain rituals that predate the, this specific technology. So let's go on to number five, which is pay attention to your body. And in the article, do you, 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 Start by saying, do you notice uh, that you're in the midst of in the midst of a phone? If you are in the midst of a phone spiral, ask what your posture is like. Yeah, I do remember this one. I think that <laughs> set yourself for success was my only uh, failure there in my memory. Okay. Um, yeah, I think this this to take a step back um, makes the point that we actually do have conditioned responses to our phones. That is. That means basically like when we encounter our phone, our brains now release chemicals indicating that we should pick it up again. The primary one being dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter brain chemical that tells you when something is worth repeating. And there's many dopamine triggers that are deliberately put into our phones to train our brains to associate picking up the phone and checking with um, with a reward and therefore that it's something worth repeating. Bright colors, for example, um, anticipation, novelty unpredictability, not knowing what's going to be there when you check, but normally finding something there, Um, emotional triggers. So basically, we are essentially like Pavlov's dogs, where we've been trained to want to check our phones, even when we're near them, we start to release dopamine in anticipation. And when I say that you should pay attention to your body, I mean, you should actually start to pay attention to how you feel when you're about to reach for your phone. And that's another purpose for those speed bumps is to help you slow down enough to notice this, because you'll start to feel this actual physical twitchiness. And it's not well, I'm just gonna say it's not in your head. It is in your head. It's dopamine. It's a real thing. And it actually is this kind of, I'm going to say it addictive cycle, where your brain is like, really, really, really wants you to reach for your phone. 
once you become aware of that dopamine cycle, once you become aware of the triggers baked into your phone, you are more likely to be able to achieve a state of disenchantment, which is an important word, I think, for people to think about. Once you see behind the curtain of how you're being manipulated, you begin to take back control. So that's one aspect of it. Another is that the FOMO thing, it's real. We, uh, once you get this conditioned cyclical response, uh, to, you know, wanting to check your phone, when you can't check your phone, you'll actually release stress hormones. So if you start to notice that you feel kind of antsy and jittery when you can't get to your phone, that's also a real thing. And I, I just think it's important thing to recognize what's happening in your body because you need to recognize it in order to have the ability to decide to step back or decide to not engage with that craving. I was at dinner the other night with my husband and we were watching people through the window who were having dinner with their phones out. And we were kind of noticing the way they were interacting. Both of them, one would pick it up, the other would pick it up because the first person picked it up. We, I noticed what they were doing. They were just checking, checking, checking. They're on a date. And then, but then I saw the man, both of them engaging in these behaviors that were like self-soothing when they weren't checking their phone, stroking their pocket when the, where the phone was, uh, shaking their legs in a way that was really jittery. And I, and I thought, wow, that's just so, that's the kind of stuff to start noticing yourself because then you be, you're able to say, whoa, this is not just... Like my brain, I'm being, getting hijacked by this device, and I I don't know if that's what I actually you know I want to have control. I don't want it to control me. Well, a part of me, as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, this is a science fiction reality, and then I realized that that um, that um, Black Mirror is already uh, very astutely um, dramatizing this, and of course, Black Mirror is the device that that word is a reference to the device like the smartphone that you're staring into um and it's interesting to bring another story a uh, personal story i remember how absurd instagram seemed before i started using it you know it just seemed like <laughs> you guys are looking at pictures you know you're just looking at pictures you're not even reading anything and you're you're worried about this low grade approval cycle of of likes and then i got instagram and then i i found myself and continue to find myself worried if what i think was a beautiful travel picture from new york or namibia or hawaii doesn't get liked as much as i thought it would and it's this emotional texture of myself that i didn't expect to experience at all but yet here i am yeah those like buttons are there for a reason and that's exactly what it is i mean i think that's the other thing to recognize with social media in particular is that the goal of social media companies is to get you to be on social media as much as possible so that they can collect data about you and they can show you ads. You're not the customer, <laughs> you're the product that's being sold. And I think that can be another form of disenchantment to be like, wait a second, like this is actually, if they're giving it away for free, then you're not actually the customer. I mean, Facebook's worth more than half a trillion dollars. And if you go to their home, the, the homepage, it'll say under the sign up form, it's free and always will be. And those two things don't make sense unless you're being sold. Yeah, yeah, Facebook, at Actually, like after the NFL anthem protests last fall, which are back in the news right now, I thought, hmm, you know, all I'm seeing is are these little links that make people angry about what's going on. So I'm going to interview an expert on the Star Spangled Banner for my podcast and two police officers, neither of whom are white. And I've tried to promote those podcasts on Facebook. I think they're the lowest liked stories ever. Um, and part of the problem could be that Facebook is sort of optimized that if something appears on your own website, it sort of is trying to talk you into boosting it. 
Um, but it feels like it's also optimized for clickbait, a 90-minute conversation about what it's like to be a police officer or what is meant over the years th through protests of the national anthem is going to be less clickbaity than something that, that goes straight to your emotional brain. So I feel like I've suffered from this algorithmic specificity. Yeah, yeah. But again, I think one of the most powerful tools for behavior change, in fact, I know, is just awareness. And to just give your listeners an example that I cite in the book, um, there is a really fascinating series of experiments run by this guy, Judson Brewer, who's now at the Center for Mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts, where he wanted to see if just becoming aware of your moment-to-moment -moment experience would be as powerful a tool in quitting smoking as the American Lung Association's uh, gold standard program. And they basically train people to do things that sound totally simple, like pay attention to the taste of the cigarette, to the smell of the cigarette, to the smell of your clothing after you have a cigarette, uh, or the taste in your mouth. Like really pay attention to the experience. Don't try to fight the craving for a cigarette, but just get curious about it. Like just try to pay attention. What does it feel like in your body? I mean, obviously I borrowed a lot of these things from my book as well. What does it feel like in your body, in your mind? Like where are your thoughts going? Where are your twitches? And what he found at the end of this is that the people who were trained in the mindfulness in the long run were five times more successful than the uh, people who did the traditional program. So in other words, the very act of learning to pay attention to your experience can actually be a powerful tool for behavior change. Um, as Judson Brewer writes in his book, he talks about how one woman in particular says she went from knowing that smoking was bad for her in her brain to knowing it in her heart. And it made a real difference in her ability to change her behavior. Oh, that's encouraging. Um, and it feels like it might tie in or at least uh, be somewhat related to point number six, which is practice trial separations. Again, bringing in this tantalizing anthropomorphized relationship <laughs> language. Well, you know, to, to make a point about why the relationship thing is the theme I went with, it's fascinating to me that the relationship metaphor seems so comfortable. I, I mean, you wouldn't say like, I've got a relationship with my um, toaster oven or my refrigerator or some other form of technology. And I think that the key there is that you have this interaction between you and your phone. Your phone reaches out to you and disturbs you in a way that previous technologies would not. And to borrow a point by Tristan Harris, an um, a advocate in this space, like there's hundreds of engineers, thousands of engineers, programmers on the other side of your phone who are trying to get you to spend more time on your phone. Um, so that's who you're actually having a relationship with. And I like to point that out to people that you know, you do have a relationship with your phone, but you really have a relationship with the people who are trying to steal your attention. Um, yes, you just made me forget what I was talking about, though. <laughs> I think I may. Speaking of type 1 diabetes, I think my blood sugar is a little low. So we're going to we're going to see well, how. Well, let's get concrete. Um, yeah, because I think a lot of the a lot of the points under there you sort of touched on already, you know, just as far as as using big picture strategies to to separate yourself from your phone. Oh, trial uh, separations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and well, actually, let's let's loop this in with point number seven, which is use technology to protect yourself from technology. So you can speak to both um, strategies, which is conceptual trial separations versus very specific um, tools that you can use. And I know some of them on your website uh, to enable this separation. Yeah. Well, trials. So both of those are actually quite. Um, practical and tangible. Trial separation is basically taking a deliberate break from your phone. And in general, I'm not suggesting that people toss their phones into a river or something like that. It's not the point of the book is not to get rid of your phone. But I think it can be a very useful experiment and experience to deliberately take a break from it and see how that makes you feel. And ideally try that for a full 24 hours or even more, um, just to give it the 
time for the full experience to happen. But basically, I mean, that's like, you know, take some time to actually leave your phone behind and go for a walk. If you're traveling, try to take a walk. Yeah, go out without your phone, see what that feels like. I mean, I know that would drive me crazy because I really like taking pictures. And I genuinely think that for me, taking pictures helps me experience things um, in a way more richly because I'm actually looking at the details. I, I don't share them with anybody, but I like taking pictures. But anyway, take a break. For the 24 hours, what people tend to the, the progression is, oh, my God, I can't do that. I've had to like coax people through email. Yes, you can, you know, just tell people you're taking a break and you won't be available. It'll be okay. Then you get really anxious and twitchy for like the first little bit. And then this sense of calm and relaxation sets in. It's like putting down a burden you didn't realize you were carrying because we feel this pressure to be connected at all times. And I think that travel can be an excellent chance to take one of those separations because the people in your life presumably do know that you're traveling and therefore, you don't have this this external pressure to constantly be available. And then in terms of the apps and using technology to protect yourself, some people find this ironic, but I actually don't. I mean, there's a number of apps that can help you set limits for yourself. Freedom is one that works really well with Apple products where you can basically decide a schedule or decide when you want to be blocked out of certain websites or certain apps um, which actually is really useful if you're trying to get things done. <laughs> Google actually announced um, really excitingly in its developers conference like two weeks ago that they're developing a suite of tools to help people do this um, within the Android system. So, for example, they have something where you can say how much time you want to spend in a particular app. And then when that timer, when the time goes, you know, when you run out of time, it'll turn to black and white or do something that indicates that you've reached your limit and then make it less appealing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of these listed on my site and in the book, but there's tools you can use to protect yourself. I, I also love inbox when ready, which is something I use for Gmail. Um, that basically hides your inbox. You would not think this would be that important, but it prevents you from seeing how many messages are waiting from you, for you. And it allows you to go in, and compose an email or search, search for an email without seeing the things waiting for you. And I mean, I wrote this book. I had one year from the date of signing the contract to publication. It was crazy. There's no way I could have done that without those two apps, without basically like blocking myself. And I think you should use the tools available to you. I don't see anything weird about that, actually. And do you have some on your website? Yes, yes, there's lots. There's, uh, yeah, phonebreakup.com. I've got um, all sorts of resources, including stuff in, for different contexts, like parents and uh, kids. And I have a 30-day challenge people can sign up for there. That's a, uh, it's a series of timed emails that starts whenever you sign up for it. That's basically meant to accompany you and motivate you as you go through the book. Um, so I encourage people to check that out. And also, to there's a contact form. People can get in touch with me directly with specific questions or resources they'd like to see because I'm trying to build upon that. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's funny. I, I this isn't necessarily a travel podcast, but it's such a rich source of metaphors uh, for <laughs> for how we live our life. And I remember I traveled America, my first vagabonding trip in 1994, and I slept in a van and I used like a a phone card to collect call my parents. It's the least contact I've ever been in with my family, despite all of my world far-flung travels around the world. I called them once a week, and that was it. Uh, and then email kicked in, and it was pretty normal to be in contact with your family and friends several times a week. It wasn't expensive at all. And then smartphones has made it, I call it the electronical um, umbilical cord, where you can constantly be in contact, that it's, it's not just possible to be in contact, but some people think it's weird not to be in contact, even on international trips to fall out of 
to fall out of contact for a couple of days, people actually worry. And when I started backpacking in places like Asia, um, you would see signs that said, we haven't heard from our boy for two months. Have you seen him? And people would laugh and say, well, in the hippie era, it used to be we haven't heard from our son for two years. Have you seen him? Uh, and before I left Southeast Asia, there were signs that said, we haven't heard from our son for two weeks. Have you seen him? Uh, and I suspect somewhere there's a sign that says, we haven't heard from our son from two days. Have you seen him? And so it, it seems yeah, like- Yeah, two hours. <laughs> right, right. So even travel, which is a very concrete way of getting away from technology, has integrated technology so so fantastically that it, it has- redefined what normal is within travel yeah, itself. I think it's important to um, set boundaries. I mean, we need to start basically expressing what people can expect from us in a personal context and then professionally. So if you are going on a trip, um, you might be tempted to be in touch all the time. But I would say that anytime, with the phone in particular, anytime you pick up your phone, I think of it as a Pandora's box of emotions. There's going to be something there that's waiting for me that's going to somehow emotionally stimulate me, whether it's good or bad, but I'm not going to feel the same after I check it. And it's also going to pull me out of whatever I'm doing in the moment. It's There's no way to be present in your experience and be in a state of flow or whatever, and then be checking your phone at the same time. So that's another kind of thing I, I encourage people to begin to start to ask themselves is when you feel, when you notice that you're having this desire to pick up your phone, whatever it's for, ask yourself, how is that going to make me feel? And do I really want to do that right now? Do I want to be pulled out of this experience? And I think that's, that's relevant to what you're saying about this need to be constantly updating people on your status or like sending them pictures in real time, um, instead of waiting till you get back, you know, and, and, and then just asking yourself, is that really how you want to experience your trip for yourself? And then, wouldn't it be kind of be more fun to actually have stories to tell people when you get back instead of and get to relive your travels that way instead of people saying, oh, yeah, I saw that on Instagram or like, oh, yeah, I saw you, you, you posted about that. Yeah. And even to zoom back from the travel metaphor into everyday life, how many times have all of us said, oh, I'll just check my phone for a second. And 40 minutes later, we have been completely distracted in ways they pulled us out of our flow in in all sorts of debilitating ways to the point that we don't even know what we were thinking about when we checked our phone. Exactly. And, and to prevent this, so that's your brain getting hijacked right there. It's like needing to check something. And one thing I suggest, again, to get to practical tips is that you turn your phone from a, a temptation to a tool. And to do that, I recommend that your home screen only have tools on it, only put things on there that are impossible to get sucked into. Like Uber, you're just not going to get sucked into Uber, you know, like <laughs> um, Google Maps, probably not going to stare at that for 45 minutes and then wonder what's happened to your life. And then I also recommend if you can stomach it, that you actually get rid of the apps that you know are your problems. And everyone knows what those problem apps are. And they're usually social media or increasingly the news or email. And the, but very importantly, don't restrict yourself from using those things necessarily. Just make it harder to do so. So for example, I don't have email on my phone anymore because I would check it too much. And so now if I want to check email on my phone, I have to pull down the little thing at the top, type in uh, Safari, because I also made it harder to get that, go to Gmail, log into Gmail, and then I can do whatever I want. But it is a pain in the butt to do that. And as a result, I don't do it as much. And similarly, take Facebook off your phone that is specifically designed to suck you in and steal your attention. And if you want to check Facebook, that's fine. Do it from your desktop or do it from the super clunky, tiny little screen in your internet browser on the phone. 
Man, you know, uh, I was just thinking, much in the way that I quit Tetris told cold turkey in uh, 1995, I quit notifications altogether about three years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. My, my brain just couldn't handle notifications. It was just well, too that, much. That's really the Pavlov's dogs thing is when you hear a notification, you basically start drooling, right? I mean, really, are you going to be able to not check your phone within the next two minutes at the maximum if you hear a ding or a vibration? So I definitely recommend that people turn off their notifications, recognizing those aren't there for you. Those are there for the app developers. If you Google, I mean, you can find all these documents about engagement and what the percentage, uh, sorry, the amount of time people spend on a particular app is if the notifications are on because they get sucked into it. So I recommend taking as many as possible off um, and then building back up whatever ones you actually miss. So in my case, I've got the ones for phone calls and text messages because those are real people trying to contact me in real time and also um, calendar stuff. And they don't have anything else. And people often just think of notifications as the audible ones, but those red badges are also notifications mm. and they are also meant to suck you in. So if you go to your home screen and you do have email on there and you see a little red bubble that says 32 or whatever, I challenge you to not check that. You know, it's calling out to you. And I also like to emphasize to people you can experiment with any of these things and then undo them. If you turn off all the notifications and you want those bubbles back, that's fine. You can reinstall. I mean, you can turn those back on. You can reinstall Facebook. You could, you know, put your home screen back to how it was before. It's all within your control. So for all of these things, just view it as an experiment, as something you're curious about. See how you interact with your phone differently if you take those apps off of it and you turn off notifications uh, experiment with turning it to black and white for a while and see if that makes a difference. You know, none of it has to be permanent. You're really just becoming curious about how you've been manipulated and then deciding how you want to actually interact with this device. Yeah. You know, notifications, I quit cold turkey, but grayscale I tried and, you know, it just didn't work for me for some reason. Um, oh, yeah, it doesn't work for me. Well, there's a way to do it so that if you, it's through accessibility so that you can set it so that if you um, hit the home button three times fast, it'll toggle between black and white. Hmm. What I found is that I like, as I said, I like using my phone for pictures and I don't want all my pictures, like I want to be able to see the colors when I look at pictures. So that was a problem when I actually had to, when that setting was difficult. But that's, this is an interesting example of how you want to make the temptations harder to use, but you want to make the things that are beneficial easier to use. So it takes a little bit of work to set up, for example, an automatic text message response. You can use um, Do Not Disturb While Driving in the Apple system and it's a couple apps in the Google to, so that when someone texts you and you're taking a break from your phone, something gets sent back that says I'm in a meeting or I'm out for a walk or I'm traveling so that you don't have to worry about getting back to them. Those things take work to set up, but those are the things that make it easier for you to actually have control of your life. And, and I also recommend in terms of how to design your home screen, um, going back to that point about adding positive triggers, if there are habits you want to establish and there's an app for that, then that's fine. Like, for example, my home screen, I've got a guitar tuning app on that home screen. I've got a meditation app on that home screen because those are two things that I want to do more of. Um, and in that case, when I go to turn my phone on and I look at the screen and, you know, I wrote this book, I've thought a lot about this. My reptile brain's still there. I still turn on my phone and I'm like, what am I doing on the screen? What can I check? Um, but it's really useful to look at the home screen, not have anything that would actually be satisfying to, to try to get lost in because there's nothing there. But then have these prompts that remind me, oh, yeah, Catherine, you said you wanted to play the guitar more. So what are you doing on your phone right now? 
That's a great. That's a great idea. Again, it, go, it goes back to the idea of tricking yourself. And you've you've brought in a lot of great concrete examples uh, and strategies for this. But let's zoom out for the last point, point number eight, which is get existential about it. Yeah, I mean, you're going to die. So how much time do you want to spend on your phone? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and again, I guess that goes back to the whole the old deathbed thing. Are you going to are you going to lie on your deathbed and smile at how many Instagram likes you had, or are you going to think about maybe something a little bit more dynamic? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so many ways to think about that. You can get as depressing as you want, but even just think like stories that you tell. How many times do you tell stories about things you've looked at on I don't know Instagram or I. I I know a lot of reporters and journalists and they're like, Oh, I have to use Twitter because it's part of my job. You know, I need to know what's going on. And I'm like, well, to a certain degree, yes, but you're not actually discovering anything new when you're on Twitter. By definition, someone else has discovered that. And I think that goes for travel too, or just experiencing your life. If it's on Twitter, then it's not, first of all, not unique and it's not new. Um, you know, I was talking to someone, I was like, no one's ever won a Nobel prize for something they saw on Twitter. You have to get off your phone and experience things. Yeah, in a way, like 99% of this is like the soothing white noise of our lives. You know, it's just, it's just filling. It's numbing us. Yeah, it's not, and it's, you know, we don't want to, we don't like feeling bored. We don't like feeling uncomfortable. We don't like being alone with our own thoughts. But that's where, you know, creativity comes from. You have to let your brain not just, um, wander, but you need to not fill it up all the time. If it's constantly, getting filled up with stuff you saw on social media, or you're not giving your brain a break. It can't come up with any ideas, you know? So if nothing else, give your poor brain the chance to show you what it's capable of. Yeah, there you have it. I guess if in doubt, leave your phone inside and go for a walk. Yeah. I mean, and again, your phone will be there waiting for you when you get back and chances are there won't be too much important, <laughs> but you know, even if there is, and people are like, Oh my God, I would, you know, I would have, I would have missed that firestorm or whatever. And I'm like, well, yeah. And wouldn't that be a great thing that you'd have one more hour of your life where you didn't have to worry about that problem that now you're going to be consumed by? Didn't really. In most cases, it didn't matter. And most cases, we're not as important as we think we are. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Catherine Price's book, How to Break Up with Your Phone, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.